0: Hello, and welcome to the Wavemakers podcast. I'm your host, Tamara Khan. Well, other than some extreme weather here in Texas lately, I feel pretty lucky that it's been a good June so far. Aside from celebrating the UN World's Ocean Day on June 8th by helping promote ocean tech startups on a panel with the Seaworthy Collective, I was delighted to see that President Biden declared June to be National Ocean Month here in the U.S. I'm glad that our government and and anyone really acknowledges the ocean provides vast benefits to our society, resources and food, and jobs, half the oxygen in the air that we breathe. Regular listeners to the podcast may have copped on to the fact that my background is much stronger in science and technology. So I'm always trying to understand more how the role of policy works within with these two. So one of my first questions when I was reading about the proclamation of National Ocean Month was, what does this sort of presidential action do? Luckily, I know a guy who would be a great person to ask this and plenty of other questions. So Admiral Tim Gallaudet is, among other things, a fellow graduate of the Scripps Institution of Oceanography and a fellow host here on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. Tim hosts the American Blue Economy podcast and His monthly show explores the intricacies of the blue economy with top policy and science experts from inside and outside government. Tim has, I believe, over 30 years of career with the Navy, including as the oceanographer of the Navy, and even had a tenure as NOAA's acting administrator. There is so much more that I could say about Tim, but for now, I'll just say that I know him as a well-spoken, ocean-adoring, and all-around great guy that's out there sincerely having a great impact so it's my pleasure. Hi, Tim. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show.
1: Gosh, Tamara, what a gracious introduction. And I'll forever remember Ocean Adoring as, as my favorite moniker. Thank you so much.
0: <laughs> I mean it, Tim. I, I guess I met you in San Diego. I know you as this ocean advocate. So I'm really excited to get to to start where I usually start with my guests and just hear a little bit about your background and how you How you got here, where you came from?
1: Yeah, you bet. Well, shoot, let me start off by saying I grew up in Southern California and I remember learning about Scripps, uh, our our institution that we share together, uh, when I was a a swimmer. I was a competitive swimmer and I was racing in this annual La Jolla Rough Water Swim. And uh, that was right across the La Jolla Cove from the Scripps Pier, And uh, I I learned about this institution that was dedicated to studying the ocean, and I committed myself then and there to wanting to go there and to work on the ocean and do everything I could to learn more about it and be a champion for it. And long story short, that led me to go to the Naval Academy, become a naval oceanographer. And as you said, when I finished my career in the Navy, I worked at the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration doing the same kinds of things, working on the ocean and being a champion and steward for it, and so it's just been a really wonderful ride, and I'm trying to keep that up, too, in my third life uh, as a consultant for a lot of really cool tech companies that uh, you're also working with.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, I guess that's a great place to start, actually, Tim. Um, You told me not too long ago about some of the work that you led at NOAA on strategic plans to advance NOAA's products and services and their focus areas of science and technology. So maybe you could start there. Talk a little bit about that and those areas.
1: Well, this is, yeah, sure. I'd love to talk about this because we, we have a mutual passion for blue tech. And what the, the situation was uh, when I was at NOAA, I was an acting administrator in charge for a while and my permanent job was the deputy administrator. And we had an acting chief scientist, Craig McClain, who I, I worked with closely, really admired, uh, but there's typically a, a chief scientist who's appointed uh, at, with the administration, and they didn't have that person appointed, so Craig was filling in. And Craig and I talked, and he thought, he said, you know what, boss, he called me boss, he's a great guy, and he said, I, I think we could do a lot more if you were to maybe help me with the role and assume the chairmanship of the NOAA Science Council. Um, and so I didn't i didn't take over as chief scientist, but I took over in terms of the, the role of coordinating science across the agency. So I was be, being the chief scientist maybe in name, or not in name, but in, a, in function. And I looked at the agency and I saw all this great work in these really cool emerging areas of technology, but none of it was being coordinated. And so I decided to form teams, executive committees, for these six areas. And we developed strategies and plans to coordinate work across the agencies. And, and the six of them are uncrewed systems or, or drones, autom- or pardon me, artificial intelligence, a thing called omics, which is like microbiological big data. It's very cool, like environmental DNA is an example. And then citizen science, cloud computing, and services, and data. So those are six strategies and plans we developed. And if you want to dive into any one of those, I can, because uh, there's a really a lot of fascinating ocean applications of all of them.
0: You know, the one that strikes me is the omics, but I, I want to set that aside for a moment and go first to the unmanned or uncrewed systems, because we've had quite a, a couple of guests here on the, on the show that have been working in that field. So to have you expand on on what's going on in that field and how government and science interact in that field would be great. Can I hopefully not too detrimentally interrupt us? I have to say that I know Craig as well, and I wanted to say that you and he share something in my mind, that you're both fantastic MCs and and speakers. I I know Craig from... um, he was our MC at a Blue Tech Week conference or two in San Diego that is there to support ocean technologies. And I know you from MCing. the first time I met you was MCing, um an event that honored a great oceanographer, Dr. Wal- Walter Monk. So I, I just think you two are must come from the same stock.
1: <laughs> well, well, we, we have uh, a lot lot in common. Uh, we're both. Uh, Scuba divers, for example, uh, he's a he's a varsity wreck diver, that's for sure. Uh, oh, I'm wow. still, yeah, yeah, and you can see our audience can't see, but I have a picture of myself scuba scuba diving on a wreck uh, in my studio. But um, uncrewed systems or autonomy at sea is a, good
0: for you, Tim. Bring us back.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, is a wonderful emerging area because it's really it is the future, and the future is now. You're seeing autonomous systems used for every aspect of ocean science. And, and sustainable ocean use. Just yesterday, I read about the very first trans-ocean large carrier or ship. Uh, I think, oh, gosh, I forgot which country launched it. Korea might have been it. But ultimately, we've had now a, trans-Atlantic, a trans-oceanic voyage of a major shipping uh, carrier. And now we also had a, a major voyage off the Atlantic by IBM's Mayflower, which is a research ship. So we're having large... Autonomous ships now transit the ocean and we'll see more of that one of the big efforts I pushed for NOAA and it's, it's Continuing to develop is making our oceanographic ships mother ships of drones surface drones that can do hydrographic mapping like the DRIX, uh made by Ix Blue. NOAA has bought two of these one with the Ocean Exploration Cooperative Institute and one with the uh, Office of Marine and Aviation Operations and with those two this year NOAA is doing all the demonstration and testing to work out the tactics techniques techniques and procedures and and concepts of operations to make basically operationalize them and they're going to move forward likely and purchase really replace all their manned survey launches or crewed survey launches with these surface drones in addition to aerial drones for like for shoreline mapping and marine mammal, mammal monitoring and underwater drones, like gliders for measuring temperature that are essential for hurricane prediction. So that that's just, there's so much happening and it's great. And I guess one of the big things that I did, kind of relating to your National Ocean Month proclamation that you introduced. So what the importance of that proclamation is it affirms administration policy priorities regarding the ocean and some people might not believe it, but there hasn't been a big difference between what we were doing in the Trump administration and what Biden's administration is doing now. Uh, we, NOAA is continuing to move forward, ocean technology, science, and stewardship. And granted the higher level, there's some major policy differences, but at the agency level, uh, no, uh, Administrator Rick Spinrad, my good friend, has committed to continuing all of the work we were doing. The uh, drone program is—it was a FY20 new start and established a new uncrewed systems office and program, and he's continuing that, which is just terrific. Uh, so that, that's just one of several areas.
0: There's so much to unpack there, Tim. That's here. Uh...
1: Okay, let's let's talk about some really good examples. How about this? Just last week was a great article about how NOAA's P3 Hurricane Hunter uh, has just operationalized a a drone launching capability. So an aerial drone outside the hurricane hunter, in a hurricane, to fly the drone in the hurricane and get the boundary layer winds, which are critical to improving the forecast and the model the model performance. So that that's like such a neat example of drones, right? So think about this. We have glider drones under the water, under a hurricane measuring the temperature, which is critical to forecasting intensity. Then you have simultaneously aerial drones uh, happening in the hurricane now. And potentially, we'll have a surface drone like the sail drone that navigated in a hurricane last year. So that that's just a dramatic development. Now we have all three domains. Drones are able to operate inside hurricanes, collect that critical data, improve the forecast, and save lives.
0: And of course, prevent lives of, of uh, crude systems trying to collect that information. Just...
1: Ah, and a good point. And in fact, as this administration is being a advocate for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, well, what better way to do that is than to using these very low emission vehicles without people in the loop to collect the critical data. Uh, So there's just so many win-win-wins in this, uh, too many to count.
0: So maybe a good question to ask you there is where did the people come in on, on this side of things?
1: Well, that's a great question, Tamara, you know, because what I joke about when I was leading the Navy's underwater drone fleet, the largest one in the Navy is operated by my former command, we we joked that there is no there's no such thing as an uncrewed uncrewed system, you need people to maintain them and configure them with sensors, for example, and also process the data and, and then put the data in the hands of decision makers. So there's a lot of the, the steps are automated, but you always have to have a person in the loop guiding the development and the execution. So very good point. And actually, I love this too by the way, because in the Navy, for example, I worked with the University of Mississippi to establish the very first uncrewed maritime systems certification course. So basically drone pilot course. And now no, is a part of that course as well. And so, and I've met, I have met NOAA Corps officers who were certified as ROV pilots and drone pilots. And, and actually, the, the one in particular that I mentioned, I, I remember, he has now become a regular pilot. So he, he can fly an ROV, a drone, and a real plane.
0: How neat. It's funny that you say that. I just, uh, I mentioned to you that I went on a fishing trip and the captain of my of my vessel was actually a retired Army uh, veteran and had become a fisherman and a pilot and a drone pilot. And he was no spring chicken, so I was pretty impressed. With
1: yeah, how about you, you can teach an old dog new tricks. How about that? An old <laughs> sea dog.
0: An old sea dog. Those sea dogs never never stop going. Um, well, you mentioned also about SailDrone and IxBlue. So those are two private companies that are working with a public agency like NOAA. Maybe you can go into that. I really love that intersection of of public-private.
1: I do too. This is something that when we were at, when I was at NOAA, I worked at Champion and we signed about a dozen agreements with both private sector uh, and uh, philanthropic organizations to advance NOAA's capabilities. And I I think uh, stepping up back a bit Uh, The former White House science advisor was a man named Kelvin Drogmeyer, a meteorologist and vice president of research at the University of Oklahoma. So big weather person. But he really embraced ocean technologies. And so we, for example, put out an ocean proclamation uh, every June of the time I was at NOAA saying many of the things that were in the most recent one about administration being committed towards ocean science, technology and stewardship. And uh, Kelvin, he... He was a great big thinker, and when he first took over, he talked about the fact that there was a, we're, that we're in a second bold era of American innovation right now. And what he was referring to was the first bold era, which was after World War II, and you saw a number of really dramatic advances in technology, such as nuclear power, uh, space exploration, with the Apollo Mercury missions, Gemini and uh, supercomputing, and, um, and, and they were all, uh, what was distinguishing about all of those is they were all funded by the government, largely. You had the National Science Foundation, the National Labs, uh, the Office of Naval Research, and now you're seeing really dramatic advances in similar areas, like space exploration, now underwater exploration. Um, you have things like uh, artificial intelligence, but all the major advances, drone technology we talked about, are happening in the private sector. And and we realized we could not move as fast as the private sector. You know, look at SpaceX. My gosh. I mean, NASA is still trying to develop their space launch system. And meanwhile, SpaceX is putting, you know, crews up in orbit. It's, or, or near orbit. They haven't orbited yet. But they're going to be. It's going to happen. They're and perfect uh, and they're committed. On. Right. And, and I love it, too. And and we saw the same thing happening in the ocean Caladan Oceanic, uh, run by Victor Vescovo. He has dove in a Triton submersible to all the deep trenches in the ocean. He's been below 10,000 meters over 16 times, and he's done the Mariana Trench about 10 of those, which prior to that in 2019 had only been dove twice. And so that's, that was his own company partnering with a submersible manufacturer in the U.S. and Florida. And he just, did, you know, they're like a SpaceX for the ocean. And, and long story short, that's what's happening now. And so, partnering with the private sector is really how the how the the nation is going to be able to harness all these really wonderful developments.
0: I think that's a really clever thing to realize that sometimes the smaller, more nimble groups can can go faster. So tap into that. And I, of course, speak to a lot of innovators and entrepreneurs that would love to be involved in that way and and help advance our government's efforts and make America, you know, a leader in, in, in ocean exploration and, and dealing with the climate crisis. So
1: I'd say uh, that's a really good point. And I wouldn't say make America a leader. We are a leader. We want to stay a leader. It's absolutely true.
0: I'll take the correction, Tim. Quite right. Um, So I know in last year's proclamation that you mentioned it every June the President makes that proclamation. They were talking about greenhouse gas and um, emissions and carbon sequestration. And I think this year they're very focused on on sea level rise, so and understanding and mitigating and adapting to the to that crisis, as well as these um, severe weather events. So I really appreciate the example that you gave about how Noah is involved in, in tracking that, that, that to me is really pertinent to people. And one of the, the reasons I do this podcast is to really, to explain to people why these things matter, even if you don't live right next to the ocean, it, it affects you and, and everything going on in public private partnerships with ocean tech affects you in some way.
1: Oh, absolutely true. And I've written a number of op-eds about this, that uh, people talk about climate and the challenges of climate change. Some people will call it a crisis. I, I really don't – we have a lot of crises right now. I think when we talk like, that, there's some crisis fatigue happening. I just like to focus on the solutions. And what I think are some of the most powerful solutions are happening in the commercial ocean and weather tech field. You know, for example, what, what are we talking about when we talk about climate change? Well, we're talking about long-term trends of weather. And what are the biggest challenges of weather? Well, severe storms and flooding. Flooding is what kills people. Storm surges and hurricanes kill more people than winds. And, and then flooding from rivers or flooding inland flooding or coastal flooding, uh, it, we're seeing a pretty dramatic increase in that. NOAA recently published an annual report on high tide and uh, sunny day flooding. And so that's what causes property damage, too. And how do we get around that? Well, there's these long-term adaptation challenges with respect to infrastructure, et cetera, that uh, hopefully some of the infrastructure investments recently passed will address. But the like, day-to-day uh, work uh, or day-to-day kind of impacts that can be adapted to best are through better weather forecasts. Uh, and that, that's why improving NOAA's model was a big focus of our work. We uh, created this program called the Earth Prediction Innovation Center or EPIC to improve the American weather model. You hear about this talk, you know, whenever you watch, you know, the morning, good morning, America or whatnot. They'll talk about the American model image and, the, and the, the European model outclassing it. Well, that is changing because we put in place a, a number of things through the EPIC program to rapidly harness uh, graduate students and academia to improve the code development of our model uh, rapidly and continuously. Before, it was just a number of government modelers in the Earth uh, um, and Environmental Modeling Center and the Weather Service that were updating the mod- model at a very, at a slower pace. And now you have academia and the private sector helping rapidly advance the, the model. And so, and that, that, that is what is going to help people adapt, is having better predictions and warnings about the severe weather, about the flooding that killed people in their basements in New England uh, after Hurricane Ida. More people died in New England from Hurricane Ida than on the Gulf. That's crazy. And so uh, and that, that's because we didn't have super fine scale uh, to the, not like knowledge to the block, but to the house, uh, like knowing which basements were going to flood. Now that that capability, our models are getting better to be able to do it, as is the services. So I work for another company, which I think is just brilliant. They're called Tomorrow.io and uh, Tomorrow.io. And they provide that kind of high resolution definition precision forecast with insights and a dashboard and automated alerts all tailored to what you're doing, where you are and when. So if you're either on a timeline driving or on a route, if you're living somewhere and you want to know what's going to happen, in like that flooding in a basement, these are all things that will come up to you in the service they provide in, in, a, in, in an app on your phone, or if you're a an like emergency manager or even a facilities manager, uh, they're used by a wide range of these um, companies that depend on the weather, like JetBlue, Uber, Lyft, the U.S. Open Tennis Tournament. I mean, it's just they're they're really remarkable, and I think that's what we really need to get into. Is we're used to having on demand everything with our device about knowledge of whatever it is it stocks. You know, it can be what what's being served for lunch at the local deli. You and now you know it's you can have that weather safety information, right? and that's that's really what I think uh, people need to be aware of that the private sector has to offer.
0: That's uh, music to my ears, actually. Um, so for Tomorrow. O their um, target customer i guess is is who everyone or yeah
1: everybody Now, just you name it whatever if i can't think of a single american business or person citizen that's not affected by the weather so that, that's their market and uh, like like for consider this uh tomorrow rail lines so rail lines we're talking about the supply chain and all this usc ports uh, being congested and well, none of those goods that come overseas or go from here to overseas get anywhere without the rail lines. And and th- that transport is significantly affected by winds. And when you have high crosswinds going over a rail line, that is a bad day for that rail line. And they, they plan their operations around those wind events. And you know, derailments are very costly, can cost lives, certainly cost a lot of product and um, and then and, and in time of delivery. And so knowing the weather, and these rail lines are always routing around weather, but using the applications that this company, Tomorrow.io uh, fields. And you can, you can just think about anything else, you know, the, the ports, seaports. So I, I wrote an op-ed in The Hill about this, about weather information as well as currents and, and precision bathymetry, knowing the, the, the depth of the water to a really high degree is a really critical information for shipping don't know if you saw this uh, tomorrow but just where i live my backyard over here the chesapeake bay very large ship um, called the ever forward was grounded for almost a month and it has strayed only just a few tens of yards outside the shipping channel well shipping channels are kind of just like they're 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 very uh they're dredged and they're because we have these neo panamax class ships after the panama canal was expanded uh, they, they're very. You know, the depths are just. I mean, we're talking clearances of like just only several feet, and so if any ship strays outside any channel, whether it be Los Angeles, where the president was today, or uh, here in the Chesapeake, that will uh, that will end up you know causing major disruptions in the supply chain. So all this information, this data, the technology that provides it, is uh, is uh, really helping secure and keep this free flow of trade and business.
0: Very, very familiar with that, Tim. I, I brought in some ships into ports, including in Charleston, and had to be very aware of with our operations, like just the the depth, the draft of the vessel, and even see, you know, um, high tide, low tide, and, and how it would affect our timing. So you bring up all these things that can affect the rail and the port system, and in turn, that affects everyone who's waiting on packages, and uh, anything you order goes goes through that transport of some sort. So the next time you're wondering why your Amazon package gets delayed, you never know. It could be because they didn't have good information about what was coming in the ports and stuff. So I hope uh, they're not going to rename that Ever Forward vessel, by the way, as soon as it, it got slightly... Um, if it got grounded and couldn't move forward after all for a little while.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not, not the best name, but uh, yeah, exactly. Actually, just to sum that piece up, it, this was all part of an initiative that we, I was leading at NOAA, our, our American Blue Economy Initiative, which is now the subject of, of, of my podcast on the American Shoreline Podcast Network. It's the American Blue Economy Podcast, and we talk about all these topics, and it's enjoyable. Uh, and fun because it's very relevant today. And uh, certainly as we still try to break out of the pandemic economic downturn, uh, we are gradually doing this awareness, mindfulness, promotion of our American blue economy was really just key to doing just that.
0: Please go ahead and talk about your next episode that's coming out, Tim, because from what I hear, it's a good, pretty neat topic. (laughs)
1: inspired by you, no doubt. So because of your terrific podcast, thank you for having me again, uh, Tamara. I thought, wow, you know, I I had just completed a small series with our wonderful producer, Tyler Buckingham, uh, on uh, kind of some military-related aspects of the blue economy. And it made me think, Whoa, you know, I I know some other areas I might want to have some sort of sub-series on. And uh, what immediately came to mind to me was uh women wave makers. Uh, you have this wave makers podcast, and I have been working with uh, several women that are really leading in the blue tech, blue economy field. And I thought, why not just have some of them on my shows for? And so, I'm going to have a little three part sub series uh, on women wave makers. And uh, the next episode I'll have three uh, from different companies. Yeah, I'm sharing two, I love that. And uh, um, from one, is going to be this next one will be. A company called so far ocean they're a buoy and data company and their government lead is tusca lichtenheld and i'm going to have her on i'm going to have a woman named celeste larue who is i just spoke with recently and today and she she is fielding a seafood analytics software suite to basically help you check to make sure your seafood is not illegally caught so we have a buoy tech company and then we have a, a kind of a software analytics company and that's called the, that's called Seafood Check. And then, um, uh, the next guest I'm going to have is a woman named, this is all on one show, the next show, Patty Gross. And she is with a conservation nonprofit called Force Blue. And she's the dive safety op, uh, officer. And, and I love, I love seeing conservation, uh, uh, involved in blue economy discussions because blue economy refers to a, a sustainable economy that's not primarily extractive, but can, 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 continue to conserve the resources at a sustainable rate. And so that's why I wanted to make sure Patty got on. Plus uh, we talked about scuba diving and Craig McLean. And so Patty's kind of of the same, kind of the same cloth, if you will.
0: Absolutely. I think that's so fantastic to, to have that focus on, on the diversity side of things. I know one part in the proclamation this month that caught my eye was that um, it wasn't just about science and solutions, but recognizing that indigenous people and their local knowledge are important as well. So really like that blue blue tech, the blue economy is focused on that kind of thing. Um, and yeah. The, the other thing you mentioned there about seafood check is interesting to me because I I think I know a lot of people who do care uh, that they want to support the right say, seafood companies or re- eat at the right restaurants and do the right thing, not support the, the illegal fishing community, but maybe don't know how. So things like that enable people to to take action. This is
1: great. Uh, Tamara, we were, we were just talking about this, Celeste and I, and right now uh, the system as it exists, the various certification organizations, I think there's like Fish Watch and several others, they're they're not very comprehensive or robust, and some of the, the certifications are such that they are they're not like they're not necessarily the product you're getting there. It's it's the it's maybe just to, at the fishery level. So it might be like oh okay, uh, Chilean sea bass sustainably caught or you know without bycatch or illegal fishing, if you will. Um, but there's it, they don't really refer to your plate; they're referring to the fishery and so it's not it's not the data is incomplete and and i think what celeste is going to be able to do is provide an analytics based service to get there and, uh, and so we're hoping to create a movement and it's maybe a few years off but if we could get noaa enforcement fisheries enforcement folks and potentially customs uh, customers and border folks and maybe even the major seafood distributors to start wanting to uh invest and in, and in apply this uh, analytics package we might be able to uh, get more people aware of the potential of really being able to understand if your if your seafood, your you know your uh, dish at a, at a restaurant on the waterfront is is something that was not caught illegally. That's our goal. It's
0: fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's it's okay if it's going to take a little while. You have to start somewhere, of course. And before I run out of time with you, Tim, I, maybe you could touch upon uh, what you were saying there um, about these companies getting maybe funded by government entities and, and other invest- investors. Do you have any advice for the entrepreneurs that listen and come on my show for how to do that?
1: Right. Well, uh, patience is one. The, the getting on government contracts is not easy. Uh, actually, what I found, and I, I'm working with about 15 companies, I counted the other day; it's kind of crazy—ten nonprofits and five research institutions right now. And and getting government contract work is hard. Uh, I wish it was easier, um, but ultimately, I found that the one of the best ways to do it, if you're really, especially if you're a startup, is find partners. Uh, like for example, I one of the companies I work with, I really love. They're called Linker, and they're Noah's biggest contractor. And they just recently pushed through the small business threshold and they've decided strategically to to go bigger, to to expand their portfolios. So they brought in me to help them with other other potential clients like the Navy. And um, what they've been really masterful at is uh, partnering with other smaller startups that maybe have a niche capability. And so I would, my top advice for any, any blue tech startup, is find a good partner, um, and then and, and it could be it could be someone like Linker, a bigger one that, that you want to form a joint venture partnership with, um, or and I'm not trying to be a, a advertising, but so, or you could bring in someone like me, just who knows government contracting and offices, and I found that to be super beneficial. Some of the countries, are, are companies I work with right now, um, I, I I'm some of the work I'm just doing for free because I believe in them, like like Celeste, I'm just doing pro bono work only. So find an ally who knows how to knows how to navigate the government, and uh, and and then with that, you know, either of those approaches, I think, will could be very beneficial.
0: I think that's a great advice. I, the partners and collaboration piece of Blue Tech is one of my favorites because I, as I often say, the ocean sort of connects us all, so we all need to be connected to make things better for the ocean. <laughs>
1: Amen. You know, and that's funny when that company so far, the buoy data company, they're brilliant. And that's their, that's their basically their company motto of you know, connecting the oceans for to better the planet.
0: I think you touch a lot upon that um, and about the data and knowledge translation. Like you, you have to make sure you're bringing not just big data, but knowledge and information to people and the entities. So Maybe having good partners can help you focus on doing that well, as well.
1: I think so. I, I think so. I see that. I see that happening quite a bit in industry, and again, it was a big focus of ours at NOAA is bringing in diverse groups and teaming with uh, multiple players and stakeholders to uh, kind of, in a way, rising tide lifts all boats, and uh, to just bring up the, the the level of either service or uh, capability.
0: Tim, you you mentioned before that the second bold era that we era that we're in, and I'm just wondering, in your opinion, where do you see us going from here? Where what wonderful things might come out of this era, of of public-private partnerships and blue technology companies, the small, the large.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's so much happening tomorrow. Gosh, where do I begin? Uh, Well, let's let's talk about. Let's go back to the science and technology areas and what i'm seeing now is transformational advances in our ability to understand the ocean to the science the uh, ability to protect and the health of the ocean and preserve it and uh, and the ability to sustainably use it so those are kind of the three areas i look at the ocean right now through i look at again science and understanding protection and health conservation and then sustainable use and in all of those, the advances are really quite remarkable. Let's, like omics, we, we, you mentioned that. Environmental DNA micro basically it's like it's all this microbiology. It's, it's proteomics, transcriptomics, metabolomics, it's uh, next generation gene sequencing is what allows for it. Think about this, you know, I don't know if you've ever done. Have you done 23 and me?
0: Oh, I know about it. I have not done it yet.
1: Well, I have. I have. And, and my wife and I both did. It was a fun Christmas present last year you have this now, you have next generation gene sequencing and, and our ability to understand DNA. you like it used to take supercomputers to do this. and now I've seen the devices. they're almost as small as your iPhone. And, and that's what's helping us now map the like for example, the the, the, uh, the microbiome as well as the uh, entire ecosystems. So for example, a NOAA ship used to have to still does goes out and does a, a stock assessment survey uh, to assess the distribution and abundance of certain fishes, and then the Fisheries catch, fisheries Council set catch limits based on those. Uh, important fisheries management tool, these stock assessments, ships go in, they spend a lot of time, they emit a lot of greenhouse gases, and they scoop up a lot of sea life. It's all totally invasive and you can't replace it, so you just kill a bunch of fish to basically protect the fish, kind of ironic. Now, with next-generation gene sequencing, this eDNA, this omics capability, you can scoop up seawater, and then you can do analysis of the distribution of species based on all the little leftovers and uh, all the um, uh, scale, fish scales and whatnot, and uh, and, and, um, that is going to allow you, through DNA, to know how, how much of a certain fish species and other species are there, like marine mammals or whatnot. And recently, the, the key thing was understanding the abundance. And we've recently shown we, the scientific community, NOAA, uh, has been able to estimate abundance of certain stocks. And that's a harder one to do. I won't go into the math and science on that now. But think about it. Just scooping up seawater. And that's what you got with technology. Beautiful. I mean, it's totally less costly, less intrusive on the environment. And that's just representative of one of many uh, capabilities that are emerging to better understand the ocean to sustainably use it and ensure its health
0: you're talking about like forensics to me we're getting so smart and so good at looking at the tiny little things the tiny little clues to putting together a, a, you know the mysteries that we need to solve in order to improve how we do things I, it's super fascinating to me it's a very complicated subject that the DNA... I don't know if most listeners will have heard of, of DNA and RNA in the ocean. So definitely interesting to hear about how fish leave their little skin cells, their scales behind just like someone, someone would on land.
1: Well, you, it's a good... Uh, you, you captured it perfectly. The, it's marine CSI. <laughs> but it's, and I should share with you this, tomorrow. You'll like this. Funny, I I did one of the nonprofits I work with is called the Marine Conservation Science Institute, MCSI, Marine CSI, and there there's they have a very uh, kind of specific focus. They're into white shark conservation, great white shark conservation, and uh, and so they they don't use EDNA yet, but they do use photo identification of individual white sharks taking during surveys off uh, in the Eastern Pacific, and I was. My wife and I had the great experience of participating in one of those. So we went cage diving for three days with great white sharks, which, and We great by sharks, which and all our data was used in a scientific study, of the population. We identified individuals in the population. Some were new, some had been before. And that long term 22 time, year time series is uh, being used to assess the health of the Eastern Pacific ecosystem. Fun stuff, I will tell you.
0: That's very fun and very adventurous. What a cool career to have, Tim. I'm glad you're inspiring our young listeners to- Oh,
1: well, (laughs) yes, I I highly encourage anyone to do it. Now, and be mindful, this isn't Discovery Channel Shark Week stuff. That's a lot of hype. This was legitimate scientific uh, uh, principal investigators, uh, Michael Dormier and Nicole Nasby-Lucas. Nicole is a contractor at NOAA. I met her when I was the deputy administrator and I wanted to actually go support one of her expeditions. Uh, but when I was in the government, but all the lawyers wagged their fingers at me saying, oh, you can't support a nonprofit over another one. And I was very frustrated, but I decided to follow the ethics rules. And as soon as I left, <laughs> Karen and I got signed up for a, a cruise and uh, we're glad to be able to support that research. It's the epi- it, the our cruise is gonna be on a, dis- a Nat Geo uh, show um, soon. And I don't know when, but I think it was, it was supposed to air last month. I'm not sure what's holding it up.
0: Very neat. I, I, if you can give us any information on how to how to tune into that, that's the kind of thing I would love to share with my listeners. And maybe I'll have you, Tim, leave us with uh, whatever kind of inspirational takeaways you'd want people to take. I, I I will tell you that I have read a lot of your opinion pieces in The Hill, and one of the things that struck me while reading a recent piece was how your diving experience have really influenced what you're doing and and how much effort you're putting into this sustainable ocean um, effort. So anything you can leave us with would be great.
1: Well, I'd love to do this, Tamara, and thanks so much for having me, and thanks for Posting this wonderful show. I love the title. Uh, it just resonates with me in every way. And uh, I guess the advice I would give relates to a LinkedIn post I shared on World Oceans Day. And if anyone wants to check out my profile, uh, I think it's Rear Admiral Tim Gallaudet uh, on LinkedIn, uh, you'll, you'll be greeted with a pretty impressive photo from my post on June 8th. And it was really short. Actually, I was so busy that day and I only thought about posting something for World Oceans Day quite late in the day. But uh, what I said, I put a picture of me and I was free diving with a shark. And it's a really dramatic photo, actually. And uh, I, I said that uh, basically having worked on, uh, in and above the ocean for four decades um, really makes me passionate about recognizing World Oceans Day and that... Um, I'm looking forward to more decades to come, diving into what we all love, and uh, and that's what it is. We're diving into what we love. Do what you love. If you love the ocean like me, do something about it. Uh, my daughter, for example, is uh, has that passion. She carried it with us. She's a scuba diver like like I we are. Everybody in my family, and we had a great dive with Caribbean Research this last uh, summer. And we're going to go do whale sharks off Isla Holbox in the Yucatan in August for her graduation present. And, and Laurel is her name, and I love her. She's the greatest. She majored, well, she wanted to be a marine biology major. And marine biology is hard, <laughs> you know, just tough, tough major. And so uh, she switched majors to communications and but kept her minor in marine biology. And it turned out to be the perfect fit because... If NOAA or any nonprofit or NGO or any any uh, organization around the ocean, they need good communicators. They need people in marketing. They need people who understand the ocean and they can tell the story. And so that she's found her niche in that. So my advice to everybody again to close is do what you love. And if you love the ocean, there's a lot you can do. It doesn't have to be the hard science and technology if that's not your strong suit. There are many other areas where you can be a champion of our our wonderful uh, seas and marine spaces and just find that niche and again, do what you love. And uh, and if you love the ocean, I think you have a lot of work cut out for you.
0: That's perfect. So, thank you so much, Tim. I agree so wholeheartedly that there are, the workforce development piece of what we do is so important and so inspiring. And I know I've spoken to a lot of students that want to be marine biologists and don't do it because maybe their parents say there's no career in that. But turns out there is. So, absolutely. And
1: there's so much other, you know, there's everybody kind of gravitates to marine biology because of the charismatic megafauna draw <laughs> but that's all great but there's so many cool jobs in regarding the ocean and coasts and i love the american shoreline podcast network for promoting them and yours specifically so uh i just encourage all of your listeners to keep listening to your great show and thanks for having me
0: thanks very much for taking the time to be on tim i know you've got a, a- Lot going on and a lot of companies you're supporting, a lot of initiatives you're working on, and then, of course, your own podcast, the Blue Economy Podcast. Tune in to Tim Galudets and well, thank you again to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for hosting both of our shows. Thanks to the listeners as always, and reach out on Instagram at Lady Blue Tech, We're, I'm on LinkedIn. I'll be sure to, to link Tim's profile on LinkedIn as well in the description of the show. And please feel free to reach out if you're interested in sponsoring an episode or if you know of an innovative ocean technology that's making some waves.